Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Megan O'Connor to the show. Dr. Megan O'Connor is the founder and CEO of EntCycle, a company that has developed and deployed an electro extraction technology to recover critical minerals from battery waste. Dr. O'Connor holds a PhD in environmental engineering from Duke University and was previously an entrepreneurial fellow in the Innovation Crossroads program at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Megan, how are you doing today? Good. I'm very well. Thank you for having me on today. Megan, thank you for taking the time out. I'm very excited to speak to you. Before we dive into EntCycle, take us back in the journey, 2017. What led you, what was the aha moment that led you to found EntCycle? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, yeah, so we're turning five this month, actually. So it's a nice uh, anniversary for us this month. Um, the the way we found our way to EnCycle actually started back in 2008. Uh, my co-founder, Chad Vasitas, was a, a full-time professor at Harvard, and he had developed this really awesome technology, which is now the core piece to EnCycle. He had actually developed it for a completely different application in wastewater treatment and, and did lots of basic science work on it for, for about a decade or so. And I, I stumbled upon him in his lab in 2014 when I was a graduate student at Duke University. And around that time that I met Chad, I was also starting to dig into the literature and different media outlets looking at articles on critical minerals and all things circular economy. And this was back when I think this phrase circular economy was just starting to become popular or a buzzword and nobody really knew what to do with it. And I started to look at how many critical minerals we actually had and the fact that, you know, there was lots of articles and media attention around the fact that we are very excited and need to transition over to clean energy. But I didn't really see much about the fact that we don't have actually enough of these critical minerals to truly make that transition in the time frame that we need to or want to. And so as I was digging in and seeing that there was a just a lack of technology and innovation in the space and that could be a real solution or an opportunity here. That's when I met Chad and the the sort of aha or light bulb went off uh, in my head thinking like, what if we used this really cool electrochemical technology that Chad has developed before metals refining, metals recycling, just a much better way to, to pull these metals out for us as a secondary source for the clean energy transition. And so that's what um, Chad agreed. And when I worked on that for my PhD project for the next three years, and then we got to 2017, about a month before I graduated. And that's when we were like, oh, crap, it works. <laughs> now what are we going to do? <laughs> I'm like, wow, this thing actually does what we wanted it to do. And that's when we made the decision. We actually sat down at a bar in Boston, had a beer and said, you know, let's do this. Let's, let's build the team. We'll find the right folks to support us through this. We think the timing is right. You know, in the next couple of years, I think this will become a very large issue for not just North America, but the world. Um, and so we started our journey then, and 
uh, you know, we're thankful and excited to be here where we are today. Well, congratulations on your fifth birthday. What Thank was you. Chad trying to do with wastewater treatment plants? He was doing all sorts of different applications. So one of the the couple of the major ones that his lab worked on over the years was um, removal of hazardous uh, materials in wastewater. For example, like the dyes that they use to to dye jeans and things like that. So some of the hazardous organic chemicals that tend to stick around in the environment uh, because there was really no good way to get rid of them. Uh, so he worked on a couple of those, and then and that's really with one part of the technology that we don't use. Actually, I flipped it uh, to work in the complete opposite way. Um, still the, the core principles, but it was interesting to to sort of make that transition. We as a company have actually spoken to a few fabric companies, and that issue with dye is still out there and very prevalent. Oh, interesting. I actually didn't know that. Um, I'll have to see if any of Chad's old students are still working on that. Interesting. So you mentioned you were digging around in circular economy slash circular material. What does digging around mean? As a grad student, I was digging into all the literature. <laughs> so all the academic papers and then any kind of media articles I could get my hands on um, with the resources that were available through the, the different universities. So I was digging around in that literature and I saw these patterns emerging where, you know, it was just, we were not going to be able to create this circular economy if we couldn't figure out the recycling piece. And even if we figured out the recycling piece, there was still this issue in the mining space where when we dig up these materials out of the ground, it's still an extremely hazardous process and a part of the clean energy economy that I don't think people realize, or I, I hate to use this phrase, but people call it like the dirty side of clean energy, where there's a huge carbon footprint associated with how we we dig out these materials. And so, of course, that's all, you know, in academic literature. And so I wanted to validate that and hear it from industry itself. And I got lucky uh, that there was a green electronic summit, they called it, at the university around that same time. And of course, it was close to all graduate students and even other professors. It was hosted exclusively by one professor who wanted to get s similar feedback from industry um, to think about the research areas they want to focus on over the next five years for the specific Institute of the Environment. And I heard of it in the hallway and I actually banged down this professor's door for three weeks straight until he finally <laughs> let me in <laughs> and just be a fly on the wall. I was like, I've been researching this. I really just want to hear it from them and build, you know, I don't want to build technology that isn't needed or wanted. Right. Um, and so finally he let me in as a scribe. So I sat there taking notes by hand for about nine hours, um, but oh, it was totally worth it to hear, you know, exactly what I had been reading um, from, you know, you know, the major electronics companies around the world who were in that room uh, that not only was supply chain, you know, top of mind for them and where they were going to get these materials. Cause a lot of them were consumer electronic brands where, you know, they use a very large amount of cobalt. Uh, and then they were seeing the, the anticipated demand for cobalt and nickel in lithium ion batteries for electric vehicles, um, which back then, you know, weren't as, as in demand as they are today. And then the second thing that they kept bringing up was they just didn't have a waste management solution. So when all these phones or EVs or all of these very large forms of electronics waste reach their end of life, what are we going to do with them? Because we can no longer ship them overseas, which was which is how we have done it for many, many years. And so those two combined, I kept thinking, I can't believe nobody's developed technology, at least that I could find, that sort of combined those two, creating a recycling solution or a refining solution that could take end of life material and turn it into a new source of feedstock or 
uh, secondary material to put back into the supply chain to try and alleviate that supply demand issue that we all knew was coming. And so that's that's part of the other that's part of the aha moment of uh, okay now I'm hearing this from industry themselves. I think this is really worth worth, worth our time. Now there's a big difference between having a oh crap or aha moment and then going to the path of commercialization. What made you decide to take that leap? I honestly I sat down with my two co-founders who were both professors at the time. One of them is now full time with us. And, you know, very academically, we sat down and literally made a pros and cons list. And I actually tossed that aside and I said, there's a lot of cons, but I really am very passionate about doing something that is meaningful for the clean energy transition. And I think this is a really large problem that is being overlooked. And, you know, there were people who doubted that a technology like this would be needed or that it would work. And I said, Look, at the end of the day, even if it fails, I will have learned a lot of new skills and I will have you know, gotten myself into this industry. So either way, it's a win in my mind. And so from there, it was an easy decision. That's interesting. Considering background science, you make a pros and cons list. The cons <laughs> outweigh the pros and you still take the leap. I do. I, I, <laughs> I thought the risk was worth it. So I'm I look back now and I think, wow, I was pretty crazy as <laughs> a 27-year-old, <laughs> but I'm glad I did it. Um, I don't think our timing could have been any better. But it's only crazy or outlandish or ridiculous ideas that really move the world forward. I agree. And I thought that if we don't do this now, when 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 will we do it, right? If, if I can help make a change in any way, even if it's small, it will be meaningful as we move forward away from the fossil industry. I agree. Now, we've both mentioned EndCycle a few times. Can you give us an overview of EndCycle and your role at the organization? Yes, I am the CEO and one of the original co-founders of the company, and we are developing a new technology to refine these critical minerals like cobalt, nickel, rare earths, um, to create a much more sustainable, secure supply chain for both North America and Europe. And where are you in your journey right now? Let's see. We, as I mentioned, are five years in and we are just reaching commercial scale. So our fully scaled commercial unit is now in-house at our at our headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. And we're going out into our first customer site in Q1 of 2023. So we're very excited. Now, in researching, I see that you work with waste companies, e-waste companies and mines or mining industry. Is your first customer in e-waste or mines? It is in the waste sector, yes. And your current commercial facility, how are you sourcing your feedstock? Great question. So our partners are all in the scrap business. So lots of scrap has been has been collected in the United States, especially for many decades. Um, I don't think people knew where it was going, but these are the sort of the quote unquote certified e-waste recyclers where they were they're legally allowed to collect and then ship overseas. Um, so these are family-owned businesses that have been around for many years, recycling all things from lead-acid batteries to s- different cell phones and things like that. And now that lithium-ion is more prevalent and there's lots of value that's been realized to be had from those, uh, they're trying to figure out how to chemically recycle those. And so that's where we come in, is we're sort of a bolt-on technology to these uh, e-waste recycling firms where they're just used to uh, the logistics and maybe mechanically shredding these materials to then ship. And we can go on site and help them chemically process it into the valuable metals that can be put directly back into our supply chain. So keeping that supply chain very localized versus having to ship it over to Asia to be refined into metal. Can you double click on that comment about shipping 
e-waste over to Asia and perhaps how we're getting some of the material back into the supply chain currently? Absolutely. So if we think about, say, the life of a nickel, uh, nickel metal, the nickel metal can be mined pretty much, I shouldn't say anywhere around the world, but there's a few different places that you can mine nickel. Say we mine nickel here in the U.S. It, we pull it out of the ground, but we currently don't have any what they call refining capacity. So there's no way to turn that nickel that maybe is you know, 0.1 to 1% nickel uh, in terms of how much metal is in that dirt. We have to ship all of that material, which can be you know millions of tons, overseas into Asia. So that's the first time we ship that metal out. So we pay folks uh, to refine it into the metals that can then actually be put into the manufacturing supply chain. That nickel will then go to somewhere else in Asia or maybe over to Europe to be put into a cathode or an anode. It then is shipped here to maybe be put into a battery. We then use those batteries as consumers, and then it's collected by someone else in the U.S., generally across the country. And then it's then shipped as a waste product back over to Asia to be recycled or landfilled in some capacity. So this material makes many, many trips across its life. And here in North America and Europe, especially, we have a critical bottleneck of that refining capacity where we don't have any essentially here uh, in those two regions I just mentioned. And so that's really where we saw the need uh, and where we're trying to fit in is, is trying to bring that refining capacity back to the state so that we can, if we mine or have the material here already, we're not uh, giving that material up because we don't have that capacity. Do you have any thoughts or ideas as to why that system that you just explained was set up that way? For many years, uh, it was really expensive to invest in, and it still is expensive, I should say, to invest in a lot of the very traditional refining technologies, what they call pyrometallurgy, where you can think of it like a big furnace. They throw in this metal, they burn away all of the unwanted materials, and it comes out as a slag of nickel. That is a extremely expensive, think billions of dollars to set up one of these facilities. And we pushed a lot of mining out of the US. So there was not enough capacity to really justify putting up one of these refineries. Um, and B, a lot of the manufacturing ended up overseas. So we would have to ship it either way. So now that we're pulling multiple pieces of supply chain back, we're realizing, oh crap, we didn't invest in any of that infrastructure you know, back in the day. And so even if we're pulling back the manufacturing, we still don't have the refining capacity. So it's sort of a, a twofold problem of we need to pull manufacturing back, but we also need to pull back the chemical refining as well, which we do have much stricter regulation, which is why it tended to, to shift over into Asia where they have um, less strict regulation in terms of uh, the environment. And specifically regarding mining and refining, I think recently there was some commentary regarding changes to the Defense Protection Act, is that correct? Yes, the Defense Protection Act, yes, there was. So cobalt and nickel were recent, or the battery metals were recently added to that um, to help spur investment around that area to bring mining, refining, and recycling and all things uh, cobalt and nickel back to uh, the U.S. Now, do the changes in that act benefit N-Cycle? Very much so. Uh, any any movement like that from the government indicates that this is uh, a real problem and that people are trying to solve it, um, especially from you know a national security level. And so that definitely gives us momentum in the right direction of, of people wanting to bring that supply and capacity back, which inherently brings capital back to, to our space. And then I think even more recently, um, 
the IRA that was just announced, and hopefully we'll see what happens in the house if it hasn't been announced <laughs> already in the, in the hours I have not been on the news today. Um, but that too is is very, very exciting for us and thinking about, um, you know, you won't be able to get these tax credits unless you can prove that uh, the vehicle has critical minerals that were, you know, sourced from uh, North America. You know, I'm sure they have their reasons, but I've read about that quite a bit and I still don't quite understand it. I mean, it puts it puts such limitations on the number of vehicles. I think I read this morning, 147,000 vehicles perhaps can be sold in 2025, specifically with EVs because of the stipulations in the act. Yes. And that's a big part uh, in where we, we source our materials from because um, most are not from uh, partners of the U.S., um, or the U.S. itself. And so I think, I do think it will cause a lot of movement in the right direction, especially for companies like ours, where, you know, we are, we can be, and hopefully will be a source of these minerals, both from mining in the U.S. or in Europe um, and recycling. Now, you mentioned earlier that currently you're receiving e-waste e to your facility, your first commercial facility. How do, how do logistics affect your business model? That's a great question. And, and logistics, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the, the major pain points of this industry, both from the recycling side and from the mining side. And so our business model is actually to go on site with these customers. So we don't have to build out our own centralized facilities. Our technology technology is modular, so we can actually go on site with either the e-waste recyclers or the mining companies themselves. And so this first facility that we have is just our headquarters. So it's where we do all of our development work and where we set this device up or the system up, I should say, to show customers that we have reached commercial scale. But in the in Q1 of 23, we'll actually be going on site with uh, a couple different customers. So will you be locating a facility within, let's say, a specific coverage ratio, specific mileage of several e-waste recyclers? Yes, we will be uh, actually on site with some of those e-waste recyclers and then have um, facilities that can accommodate a couple if they're in the same region. Now, you mentioned modular, which can mean many different things. Can you break that down for us? Absolutely. So modular in the sense of we can have a very different business model than what you would traditionally see in the refining space where you'd have to build out a you know, $500 million to a $1 billion facility where you'd have to source all of your material from you know, all across the country to that one facility. Even if it's New York, you have to get material from, from sort of everywhere. Um, our technology is modular in the sense that it can go on site. So we can have you know, one or two units at one recycler in New York. We can have one in Arizona. We can have one where, wherever these facilities exist that are already collecting this material. So we can avoid that second and third shipment that's required to get it to traditional centralized facilities. It's also modular in the sense of how we process materials and how we scale. So we have the benefit that we can economically process the low volume of, say, lithium-ion batteries that are out there today with just a single unit of ours, and our unit economics look great. And then to scale, we simply add our modules in parallel. So very similar to what you would see, say, for example, in the wastewater treatment industry. So we've mimicked what you see there in terms of scaling, where you simply just add these modules in parallel to grow with the industry. So as more batteries come off, we simply add units at this site to be able to accommodate those increase in volumes. And where are pre-owned EV batteries currently going? A little, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, they're, they're sort of all over the place. There's not really one way that we collect them right now, which is, which is part of the issue. And so we're finding that a lot of these 
pre-owned EVs and even scrap and um, you know cars from wrecks, they end up going to big auto collectors that have been getting internal combustion engines for a very long time, whether they end up at the shop or they end up at uh, an auction. These companies, those companies that have been collecting and shredding internal combustion engines for steel and aluminum, they are also seeing EVs coming in. So they're going through the same channels as traditional cars would. And those are the folks that I mentioned earlier who don't necessarily have a way or or have the know-how to chemically recycle these materials. Again, they're used to shredding and then shipping somewhere to be refined into the metal. And they're now interested seeing all this value that's that's you know in these electric vehicles, not just from the battery, but also the motors, right? Where all the rare earths are. That they could, if they could chemically recycle it, they can get much higher payables from the folks that they sell to. And that's really where uh, we fit in and where those batteries are ending up. Now in your interaction path to commercialization with potential customers, what are some of the hurdles you've come across? That's a great question. So in, in terms of hurdles that we've seen with, with different customers, again, it's, it's, it's very different from uh, between the scrap space and the mining space. They're, they're sort of two different worlds. But in the scrap space, the, a lot of the issues or, or barriers that we've seen customers um, realizing is that there's just really low volumes of batteries today. And so traditional centralized facilities need, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of tons to be able to reach that cost parity to be able to operate efficiently. And so they were very hesitant to invest in any type of technology like that because they knew volumes wouldn't be there for many decades. When they meet us, we can say, no, look, we can process these materials at the volumes today and get you the numbers that you need um, to invest in a, in a company or technology like ours. And so we're sort of changing the way that people see volumes because scrap has always been a volumes business, right? That's how they make their money. Um, and so it's sort of a, a showing them there's a different way to to you know make money off of the commodities that are in these different materials. And for the mining space, um, I think it's probably pretty obvious. It's just a very antiquated business, um, right? They're they're not used to innovation. They don't. They've never liked innovation, and so I think um, until very recently, and I would say in the past eighteen months, when we've seen this big shift in, you know, not just supply chains, but the push towards cleaner materials that go into lithium-ion batteries and EVs and everything else. Um, we're now seeing that they're wanting to change their process or needing to because of the very strict regulations that say the EU has put in place. And now the U.S. seems to be following suit pretty quickly um, to try and figure out how are we going to reduce the carbon footprint of our materials to meet these very strict requirements. So is the business model with e-waste recyclers, you buy your feedstock from them, you process and then you sell your product to an off-taker? We do not. So we uh, go and operate on site with them and we cover the capital. So we buy the units and we install them. We operate them so that they don't have to take the operational risk. We take all the operational risk uh, and the feedstock that goes in, say if, if it's a lithium ion battery, we do not own that lithium ion battery. And when we process it, we do not own the metal product coming out. So they, they love that because then they can choose where they want to send the product. It can go back to you know existing suppliers. If it's an OEM, it can go out into the market they have a lot of flexibility and more flexibility than if they were to just sell the scrap itself. And so we charge them a fee per se pound of batteries that we process for them. Okay. And how do you operate with miners? For the mining companies, because they're much, much larger projects, we will sell the units to these companies and then help to operate in some capacity. 
So when they mine a product, what's the process then to get it to your facility and then the end product? So when we sell them the the units, they will go on site at their existing refining or mining sites so that the ore does not have to travel a long distance to be refined. We refine that ore into a very high grade concentrate, they call it. So say like a 70% metal grade versus a 1% that they're used to shipping so that they can ship far less material to their end refining facility because they generally own many parts of their own process. Can you give me those numbers again? I'm not sure if I heard them correctly. In terms of the mining? So when we go into a mine site... The 70% and 1%? Yes. So typically when they mine materials today, they will pull it out of the ground and they will turn it from a, say, 0.1% metal. So there's 0.1%, say, cobalt or copper in the dirt. They will uh, mechanically, and they do some chemical processing called froth flotation to get it up to, say, a 1% to maybe 3% grade metal in the dirt. They then usually have to ship that very far to get it into a higher grade metal content like 70 to 80%. With our system, we can put it on site right next to froth flotation and help them process it from the 1% to 3% grade to that 70 to 80% grade so that it's a much lower volume because we're essentially taking out all the unwanted material for them right on site so that they can ship much less material to the final destination. Those are really amazing numbers. Yeah, we're, we're very excited for the impact we can have in the mining space. And how have the mining companies reacted to these numbers that you mentioned to me? They're very excited. We've had a lot of interest from both the mining companies and the refining companies, if they're not one and the same, because they realize the potential of the technology and the impact it could have across their different businesses. That really is amazing. Now, sounds like a wonderful story, but I know there are challenges what are the current challenges that you're facing? Absolutely. I think there <laughs> there's always a challenge or multiple challenges. So I think one of the big ones that you've they've probably heard a number of times over the past 18 months is supply chain. So we talk about supply chain in terms of metal supply chain that we're trying to solve, but supply chain in general is, has been very brutal for, I think, all hardware technologies trying to scale uh, very quickly in this market. So that has been one challenge and had, has, has made us think very quickly uh, creatively about how to get around that to be able to get into the market as quickly as possible. What are some of the creative solutions? Some of the creative solutions are just thinking through maybe different materials that you wouldn't traditionally use that we can get faster than the material that we ultimately wanted to use. Um, we've had to go with vendors that um, you know we haven't traditionally thought of as uh, the ones that we were typically going to use. Um, so things like that of just really trying to be creative of, of what we use, how we use it, and how we can interchange it maybe in a project further further down the line if we need to um, versus getting the, the end material today. And are there any materials that you prefer to work with or prefer to produce? In terms of customer feedstock? In terms of, you mentioned cobalt earlier, you mentioned lithium earlier. Which metals do you think are most in demand right now or the ones that you'd like to produce the most of? Yeah, absolutely. So we raised our series A at the beginning of this year with the focus on cobalt, nickel, and copper specifically. So the main battery metals, because we saw the biggest need in the near term, just with the the very extensive ramp up that we're anticipated to have over the next several years. 
uh, the next funding round that we're going to do, which which we're targeting the end of this year, will be to focus on rare earth metals and the precious and platinum group metals. So things you'd find in electric vehicle motors or wind turbines. And then for the, the platinum group of precious metals, things you'd find in, say, like a catalytic converter or things like that. Um, so those are the sort of three main metal groups that we focus on today, uh, but really looking for partnerships in cobalt, nickel, copper right now. Appreciate that. Now, what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself in your journey? <laughs> this is a good question. Um, the most valuable things I've learned about myself, um, I really enjoy the people aspect of growing a business. I never thought that would be my favorite part because I was such a technologist before, but really the people aspect of the business is not just managing, but but really finding that the really passionate, talented people around the world that that just believe and see the vision that you, you know, that I had, you know, starting five years ago when I thought nobody would really understand why we were doing this has been really exciting um, and, and definitely a learning for me and what I thought I would be enjoying about this role in this, in this company. And then I think um, over and over again, I have learned how critical it is to have a very strong community around you. I think a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of thinking they need to know it all and do it all. Or, and if they don't, that will make them seem like a weak or are inefficient CEO and I've learned several times now over the past five years that that's wrong. You need to build a really strong team around you and community because, you know, it takes a village to, to start a, a really great business and to succeed, especially through, you know, what we've gone through the past three years alone. And so that's been a really, really great lesson to learn. And I'm happy that um, I sort of saw that earlier on. You know, you mentioned people focused. I read one of your job descriptions. It, it says in there, people focused culture. What does that mean to you? I think in when I was writing the job descriptions and thinking about our cultural our culture, excuse me, in general, I wanted people to know that I hired all of them for a very specific reason. I like the diversity, the thought leadership, you know, their different perspective that they bring to the table and that we care about the people and it's the people that will make the business work. I very firmly believe that you could have the very best technology in the world, but it would never see the light of day if you didn't have the right people around you and the right team around you to build that and to execute on all of the things that we need to execute on. And so that's really the culture uh, that I'm trying to build at Encycle as we grow. We're now just under 20 people, which is, again, really, really exciting and crazy to think about because um, we were just eight last year, um, trying to find those really excited, passionate people um, and, and make them realize like we hired you um, because we know that you're the ones that are going to help make the difference. So you've doubled in growth. What has that meant for you from a leadership standpoint? I am very excited. I think from a, a leadership standpoint, getting not only the, the team members in place, but my leadership team, especially getting um, my CFO in, and we have a new VP of business development, and all of these very experienced, um, high caliber people in who, who see the, the same vision and believe in the technology like I do has been incredible to see. I think Chad and I, my co-founder, just sit back sometimes and think like, wow, look at how far we've come in, in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, we still have a very long way to go, but it is it is very exciting to see that that people understand and believe in the technology and, and what we're doing. And what's your journey been like as a woman in a traditionally male-driven industry? I've had a, a number of challenges I think you would hear from other women in the industry. 
Um, but I do see it shifting. I think climate has brought in a lot more diversity than you would have seen otherwise in mining and recycling and these heavy metals commodities space. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet. And and we still face, and I should say, I still face some struggles in that and being maybe the only woman in the room most of the time when I'm negotiating a contract or, you know, pitching for, for fundraising. But I do think that there is momentum to, to change that. And hopefully we'll start to see more diversity um, around the space. I agree with you. And I look forward to seeing that too. Now, let's fast forward to 2030. Let's say your favorite publication Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fortune, New Picket, were to write a headline and perhaps even a short paragraph about EndCycle, what would you like it to read? Oh, another good question. So the long-term vision for EndCycle is that we are the go-to refining technology, whether it's for end-of-life scrap or mining or refining or any of the different applications that we can put this technology in that we are the solution or the go-to to provide these very clean, you know, cost-effective materials for the energy transition. And we are that flux capacity uh, that the world really needs, that we can sort of go in and fix the, you know, really hard to reach places in the supply chain that traditional business models and technologies can't. And that's really what, you know, we want to go for. And, you know, we're really striving to make a huge impact not just from a supply chain standpoint, but from a greenhouse gas emission. So if we can save, you know, even a gigaton of CO2 within the next 30 years, I will be very happy. It's a great vision. And I appreciate the shout out to the flux capacitor. (laughs) So last question, and this could be professional or personal, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom, recommendations with the audience, what would it be? Hmm. I think just to double click on what I said earlier, you know, being a CEO and a founder, you tend to fall into the trap. And I've been there myself of thinking you need to know it all and you don't. And I think people appreciate when you say you don't know it all and you find the people who have been there and done that and are real experts in what they do to help you build the right team to really commercialize this. And so don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to to use your network and to find the right people who, again, can really believe in you and your vision. And, and it does take a community. It takes a village. So to really lean into that. And, and I think you will go much further than, than if you tried to do it all on your own. Megan, I love the idea of not being afraid to ask for help. Congratulations on your fifth birthday. It's amazing where beers <laughs> in a bar in Boston has led you. And <laughs> you. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Amazing. Thank you again so much for having me on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.